Good morning. Happy Memorial Day. So, welcome kids. God ordained it so that on this Sunday I'm actually talking about the devil with all the children in here. So, I will try not to make it a scary sermon, though. It'll be a, a normal one. So, if you have a Bible, go to 1 Peter 5. So, how many of you this week saw the video of the sea lion pulling the girl into the water? Who saw that? Okay, good amount of you. So, don't worry, I'm not going to show it. And everyone was saved, so it's a good, good story. But what happened was there was a family probably on vacation, and they had a little six-year-old girl, and there was a, a sea lion in the water right in front of them. And like good tourists, you do what tourist things do. You take pictures, you get close, you laugh. Um, and this family was just super close to this sea lion. Well, as you can imagine, what happens is the sea lion goes under the water temporarily. The girl actually sits down on the edge with her back to the wild, dangerous killer predator. And so the sea lion jumps out of the water, grabs her by the dress, and actually rips her back into the water. And immediately in this video, you hear the screaming. You have the guy taking the video who just kind of keeps watching, videotaping, and has a Starbucks in his hand the whole time. So don't be that guy if you're on vacation, especially if you have your College Park Church Fisher shirt on. Be the guy who immediately jumped in, pulled her out, and helped save her. Now, when you saw that video, when you think of that story, I'm not going to throw the girl under the bus because she was six years old. But one of the things that kind of showed me is that we need to be a lot more careful. This often happens in this story and other stories where there's a wild, dangerous, scary predator, and yet we tend to treat them casually. We think we're going to be fine, and I have pets at home, I've seen TV, I'm safe, that's a safe animal, it's kind of harmless. And we get casual, we get distracted, and then things like that happen, and a dangerous, wild animal turns on people. It's what they do. That's what they're made to do is be an animal. And that was kind of a perfect illustration for me as I, was, as I saw that and was reading 1 Peter 5, 8, and 9 of a spiritual metaphor. Our text this morning calls us to remember that we have an actual spiritual enemy who is like a lion, not a sea lion, but a lion seeking to devour us. We're told then not to be careless, not to be casual, not to be dismissive, not to get distracted, but to be on guard and careful. So the text we're in today reminds us that we don't only encounter struggles from kind of the fallen world, our sinful heart, but we have a real enemy who's out to get us, who wants to attack, who wants to attempt, and wants to accuse. So this morning, I just want to give a main idea and two points. We only have two verses. And the main idea is that you have an adversary eager to devour you, but you also have an advocate eager to deliver you. And the two points we'll see in verse 8 is that we need to be on guard. And in verse 9, we need to fight. So the first point, we need to be on guard. So look at me with chapter 5, verse 8. So it says, be sober-minded and be watchful. The two words, sober-minded, watchful, they, relate, con they convey related ideas. The first idea, the, the sober-minded it's that of not being distracted or apathetic or careless in your thinking. When Peter says, be sober-minded, he's saying, act in accordance with what the situation demands. He's saying, be ready, be alert. So then the second word, be watchful, it's similar, but it conveys the idea of actually being awake and on the lookout. So if the first word is more of the mental preparation, the second word is how you act in light of being sober-minded. So a few examples of this, of this word. Um, so first, it's 
Revelation 3.3, 3, it says, If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. So same word, be watchful, be w- wake up. Again, in 1 Thessalonians 5, 6, it says, So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. So the picture here with these words is that of a soldier or a guard kind of stationed at his post. They're to be on the lookout. It is an action of preparedness so you're not caught off guard. You're not surprised by an attack. You're not tricked or outwitted, and you know what's coming your way. The term then is telling us spiritually not to be lethargic, not to be casual, not to be apathetic, not to get distracted with what's going on in the world, not to be slothful when it comes to spiritual growth or sin, and to not be caught off guard. Sober-minded and be awake. One illustration this week I kind of thought of to help me kind of imagine what does this look like in our, in our world? What would it be like to not be sober-minded or wakeful? So Melissa and I actually bought a new car in December, new to us. We bought a little bit bigger vehicle because we've learned now with a baby, apparently you have to pack hundreds of items if you go more than two hours. So I understand why people buy minivans now. But anyways, we have this newer vehicle. It has better features than my car. It has one of those reversible cameras. So you kind of just look there, and it shows you everything going on behind you. Not only that, but it has those beeps. So it beeps, and the beep gets faster as something is approaching to your side or behind you. And it's great. I love it. It's a huge help. One of the downsides, though, is having such good technology that kind of does the work for you is you kind of lower your guard, you become more casual, and you're less alert. This is problematic than when I get in my car, which doesn't have any of those things, and I back up. And what I've noticed is I just assume that camera or those beeps will be there, and so in my car, I kind of fly in reverse, and I'm not paying attention to, am I going to hit the garage? Is there a shopping cart behind me? Are there cars? And so I just get more casual. I let my guard down. I assume things will be fine, and so I hit the reverse and fly backwards 30 miles per hour, and that's dangerous. And so that's kind of an example. You know, I thought, if you really want to bring this illustration home, you should probably back into something this week, and then Melissa's like, no, that's too far, so I didn't. We're all good. But that's an example of what Peter's saying when he's warning, be sober-minded and be watchful. Don't be casual and don't get caught off your guard. The reason, though, Peter says that, so he gives a warning, be sober, be watchful, The reason he tells us to be those things is because we have a real enemy and we are at war. Peter is like many other biblical authors in that he uses this imagery of warfare to describe the spiritual life, that we are in a fight. You know, putting to death your sinful desires, loving God above everyone else, loving other people more than yourself, resisting the ways of the world, those are all difficult things that are part of the normal daily Christian life. And they are hard. And they feel like a battle a lot of times. And so we need that reminder, that is normal, and yet keep going, fight. John Owen says it this way. says, oh, that's old. John Owen says, when sin leaves you alone, we may leave sin alone. But sin is always active when it seems to be the most quiet. And its waters are often deep when they are calm. We should therefore fight against it and be vigorous at all times and in all conditions, even when there is the least suspicion. Sin is always acting, always conceiving, and always seducing and tempting. 
Who can say that he has ever had anything to do with God or for God, which indwelling sin has not tried to corrupt? This battle will last more or less all our days. If sin is always acting, we are in trouble if we are not always mortifying or fighting or killing it. Elsewhere, John Owen said, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. So as we continue our verse, so look at the second half. He says, be sober-minded, be watchful, because your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Peter says we have an adversary, an enemy, a foe, and his goal is to destroy you or to devour you. And so this raises a couple of questions, and I want to answer these three very quickly. Who is our enemy? What's kind of his goal or mission? And then what are the common strategies he uses? There's obviously a lot the Bible says about the devil, and I can't answer all of that, but I just want to give a few basic things. So first it says, who is our adversary? Well, the Bible does use different names for the devil or Satan. Those are the two most common. And they literally mean accuser, adversary, or slanderer. Elsewhere in the New Testament, Satan is described as a dragon, a serpent, the tempter, the prince of the power of the air, the accuser, and our opponent. And I want to just give kind of five bullet point summaries. If we wanted to know a basic minimum about the devil, this would be, the, it, would be it. So first, Satan was an angel or spirit being created by God. And that's important to remember because he's not equal with God. This isn't good versus evil, but God created him as a good being who falls which means that Satan is always subject to God. And that's key to know. Second, Satan is not a force, not some impersonal evil spiritual force, but he's a spirit being with personality. He has intellect. He has emotion. He expresses will. He does personal characteristic things like have, he lies, he expresses pride, and he tries to imitate. Third, we're told that he became proud, self-deceived, and full of ambition to be like God. We're told that he initiated a rebellion against God, wanting to be like him or wanting to take his place with many other angels. And so this is kind of the fall of Satan. And we're actually told that him and all these evil angels, demons, are cast out of heaven and down to earth. Fourth, we're told then that Satan is obviously not alone, but he's described as the head of this evil empire and that there's actually working together in cooperation. So the Bible uses kind of ranking terminology, like principalities and powers and rulers. Fifth and final thing we need to know, though, is that it says that Jesus has defeated Satan and stripped him and all those evil forces of all their power. We're told that they are in subjection under Christ's feet, that he is the king and he reigns. We're also told that as believers, by being delivered from sin and from death, that Satan now has no real hold over us. And we're told that one day he will be banished forever to hell and we will be rid of him. And those are just a few, five things to know about who he is. But second question, what is his goal then? That's who he is. What is he out to do? Well, kind of you could put it under three categories. We're told that Satan wants to destroy God's works. He wants to discredit God's word and he wants to disrupt God's good designs on the earth. He wants to keep people deceived and blinded so they are disobedient and far from God. He delights in chaos and pain, destruction, anything kind of opposed to God and his goodwill. 
He wants to attack God's people then so that they turn from God, doubt God, get frustrated with God, they disobey God, or they give in to temptation. Our text describes the devil as a prowling lion seeking someone to devour. The image here is intentional. You could ask, why did he choose lion? He could have chose any animal. I think he chooses a lion because it's an animal that's fierce, to be feared. It's something that kind of scouts out its victim and it knows what it's doing. And then it's powerful when it attacks. Peter says, your enemy, the devil, he wants to devour you, to consume you, or to eat you up. The term devour, it's a graphic term. It literally means to drink down. The picture is of a beast swallowing a prey in its gulp. Now, hopefully you're getting this, but this is not meant to be a tame image. It's not a cuddly lion. It's not Simba from the Lion King. It's not a sleepy lion at the zoo. This is a fierce predator. You're meant to imagine that picture on the Discovery Channel or Animal Planet where there's a lion with kind of a bloody, soaked face. Peter refers to that kind of lion and says, that's your enemy. He's a predator. He's out to get you. He's on the prowl. And therefore, if that is your adversary, you need to be sober-minded. You need to be watchful. You need to not get caught off guard. You need to not play games, but know you have an enemy seeking to devour you. So that's his goal. What are his strategies? Part of being watchful and prepared and on our guard is knowing how the enemy actually operates. You know, Scripture actually shows us the game plan of the devil. He uses the same tactics kind of over and over again. And so if we're believers and we don't want to get tripped up, we need to know, how will he try to attack me? What are his strategies? And Later on, we're going to look at a test case where we see some of them more clearly. But let me just list four. These are kind of the most common strategies of the devil. First, he deceives our thinking, our believing, kind of how we see and perceive things, and even our belonging or unity. He also discourages He wants to discourage us through pain, through trial, through slander, through defeats in our life. He tempts. He tempts through pleasure, idols, the flesh, the world. He comes to you through intermediaries, such as the world and your flesh. And finally, he accuses us. He accuses us of sin, of guilt, of failures, of saying you're a fake, you're not a true believer, God doesn't love you. He's an accuser. Those are just four common strategies of the devil. And we'll see some of those Uh, unpacked throughout the message. But in light of who our adversary is, in light of his goal, in light of his his strategies, we would understand then why Peter would tell us to be watchful. That we have a real war, a real enemy, and we need to be on guard. If we are caught up in laziness, if we're apathetic, if we're distracted in the world, if we're caught up in our sin, then we're like sitting ducks ready to be pounced on. We can't just have good intentions well, I hope this works out. I hope I don't fall. But we're told you must make preparations. You must be on guard. And just a couple of applications. That raises the question then, well, how do I actually do that? I'm to be on guard. I'm to be sober-minded. I'm to be watchful. What does that look like in my life? Well, the first one would just be in community. The devil always works, especially with people that are isolated. The people he looks for are like the straggler who no one is around. And so one thing you need to know is be in community. And not just around Christians. A lot of people are around Christians, even in studies and small groups, and yet they're not known. You have to be willing to, however scary it is, share your struggles, 
share your sins, and then have people that can keep you accountable, who can encourage you, who can pray with you. But you must be in biblical, healthy community to have an ally in this war. The second thing is you need to know for you the temptations, the threats, the lies, and the idols that you are most vulnerable to. And then you have to actually take actions to put guards up in your life. So don't be on the phone or internet late at night or alone if that's a problem. If you tend to believe lies or you struggle with anxiety or worry and you just let the thoughts circle, you need to have a friend who can speak the truth to you. If you're a teenager, you need to know if you're going to a party or hang out, you need to know in advance what's going to happen and how am I going to respond in that moment. If you're an adult, it's similar. You know, when you go to work or hang out with friends, you need to know what are we going to talk about and then how am I going to respond. You have to choose in advance. If there's gossip, what will I do? If there's you know, slander about someone, how am I prepared so I'm not caught off guard and part of that conversation? If we're not prepared for our temptations, we will not fight. And if we don't fight, we will never win this battle. For instance, I want to just be honest and kind of share a struggle in my life right now, um, and even for my wife and I both, has been anger. And it's the kind of anger because as much as I love Lily and she walked away, I love her, she's dear and she's cute and she's sweet. At 3 a.m. when I'm sleep-deprived night after night, you know, when she's not taking a bottle and we want to know why, when we're frustrated with one another, when we just want some sleep, when we want this to get easier, when we want it to get better, when we want to have our lives back, in those moments with all those things going on, it's really easy to want to snap at one another, to say things we shouldn't say, to do things we shouldn't do, and so we have to be prepared. If those are kind of our temptations of, I really want to get angry in these moments, I'm tempted to believe, why doesn't God make this easier? Or why are they doing that? Or why doesn't Lily just sleep? Or why is my life not um, easier? Those kind of things. If those are temptations, how do we fight? How do we resist those? How would I be on guard? Well, a couple of things I've had to kind of learn in the midst of this, this fight, some successes, some failures. One is that if we simply wait until 3 a.m. and try to game plan then, we're going to fail. We have to choose in advance. You know, when we are tired, when we're tempted to say things we shouldn't to one another, how will we react? How will we, we react? Will we just kind of hold our tongue? Will we talk through it? Will we talk through it later? We need to have a game plan. When you're in those moments, you need to know, how do I give grace to this person? And you have to choose in advance and in the moment to give grace. When someone runs into something and makes a noise and you want to blow up because Lily's awake, how do you give grace there in that moment? One of the things I've even learned, maybe if you've had a child with kind of sleeping problems, you've experienced this, but your own home becomes like a battlefield. Every little thing becomes a mine that can blow up and wake up your child and what happens is you end up walking around your house like you just broke in. You're looking around and just hoping, please don't wake up the baby when she finally sleeps. And that's been our life for the last four months. But back to safeguards, not the anger issue. It includes what we've had to do is put the word into our heart so that in those moments we can pray to God for help, we can sing truths, we can worship God, we can memorize scripture. We've had to put the word into our heart so when that battle comes, we know how to fight. And we've had to ask God for help. This is a season you have for us. There are lots of good things for us to learn about you. And so teach us what your love is like. Help us as we limp along. And so we've had to be prepared. And that's one small area of temptation in my life where I've had to say, okay, I better be on guard because I know I'm weak. I know my struggles. And if I don't know how I'm going to fight, I'm going to fail. And I don't want to fail. I want to be obedient. 
the Lord. So then for you today, your situation is different. What you have to do as you hear um, 1 Peter 5a is you have to ask yourself, what are my weak spots? What are your potential idols? What are the vulnerable areas where you're most likely to be tempted? Then you have to ask yourself, well, what do I do if I know those things? I know my temptations, my idols. Am I actually trying to put things in my life that would help me be guarded? Am I trying to be watchful and alert and awake? Or am I just kind of coasting and assume things will work out and I'll try to fight this sin when it gets there? This passage says you must be sober-minded and be watchful. So as we move into verse 9, we see our second point. Fight the battle. As we move into verse 9, it's not a strong shift, more just a ratcheting up of things. In verse 8, Peter says, be alert. And then in verse 9, he tells them, actively resist or stand firm. If you think of Peter as kind of a military general calling out orders, in verse 8 he's saying, guard your post, be ready, be alert. And then in verse 9 he actually says, shoot, engage, fight the enemy. And he's not telling us to go look for a battle, but to stand firm when the battle comes to us. A couple other verses we see this language of resisting. Uh, One is James 4-7. He says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Or Ephesians 6, kind of this famous passage about the armor of the Lord, it says, put on the whole armor of God. Why? That you may be able to stand against or resist the schemes of the devil. So this language of resisting him, it points out the fact that it will not be easy. It's going to take energy. It's going to take effort. It's going to take battling for more than 30 seconds or a minute. It's going to be a lifelong process. But his point in resisting is saying, seek God's help, Keep fighting. Don't give up, but push back. Resist and fight. Peter continues in verse 9 by describing our resisting as resisting is the same as remaining firm in faith. So part of how we resist Satan's attacks is to keep trusting the Lord and his word. Thomas Schreiner says, Believers triumph over the devil as they continue to trust God, believing that he truly cares for them and he will sustain them until the end. Perseverance until the last day is accomplished from first to last by faith. So we resist by trusting the Lord. So I want to actually pause, take a few moments, and look at a test case. Where do we see some of this battle lived out, and maybe some failures, what not to do, and successes? So take your Bible and go to Genesis 3. If you have a Bible and you're new, Um, Genesis is the very first book, the third chapter. So in Genesis 1 and 2, we have the creation scene. Adam and Eve are created. But then in Genesis 3, we see this temptation. I won't go through the whole thing, but I want to look at a little bit of this passage. So we see how Adam and Eve are both ensnared, but we also see in this the tactics and strategies of the devil. So if you want to know how does he work, what are his strategies, you see it right here in Genesis 3. First, we're told that this crafty crafty serpent, he comes to Eve, and right away he asks a subtle question. It's a question meant to create doubt in Eve's heart. Verse 1, he says, did God actually say, meaning God didn't say that, and then he asks a follow-up question. He says, did God say that you can't eat of any tree in the garden? Now, if you've read this, you know that's not what God said. God said, there are all these trees, a garden full of luscious, honey-crisp-producing apples, and you can't have 
one tree. But Satan takes that and says, God said you can't eat of any tree. And so notice his strategy is he wants Eve, he wants us to see God as a God full of restrictions, that God wants to limit you. He's trying to erode trust in God. Did God say this? And then did God say you can't touch any tree? Satan wants to erode our trust in God by telling us lies about him. So then the serpent moves from a question to raise doubt to an outright denial of what God has said. So in verse 4, as he's going on, he says, you will not surely die. He says, you won't die, despite what God has said. And he continues, God knows when you eat of the tree, your eyes will be opened, and you'll be like God. So his second claim is meant to say, God wants to hold you down and keep you from becoming who you really could be. If you eat this fruit, you could become like God, and he doesn't want that. He wants to keep you as a subject. What we see from the text is that Eve is hooked. The results are stated quickly. She took of the fruit, she ate it, she passed it to Adam, and he ate. So what happened here in this scene, and you can study it more to see everything going on, but they were tempted by Satan. They weren't prepared. They were caught off guard. They gave in to their desires, and they fell prey to his attack. There's an example in this both of how not to respond to sin. We need to be ready. But also we see the strategy of Satan. He wants to tell us lies about God. He wants to erode our trust in God. He wants to appeal to our fleshly desires for something. Now let's look at an, another example, Matthew 4. So take your Bible, a lot of Bible hopping today, and go to Matthew 4. This is the temptation of Jesus. So in the first one we saw the not, what not to do. In this one we see how does Jesus image how to fight the devil. I'm only going to look at the first one. There are three temptations. We don't have time to look at all three. So I'll look at the first one because it sets the example of kind of the volley and response. So verses 1 to 3. It says, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. We'll stop there. So what is Satan trying to do? Satan is appealing to Jesus to self-provide, to not wait on or trust his Father to provide, but just go ahead and make yourself a loaf of bread. Now remember, because sometimes when you read this, it doesn't sound like the biggest temptation in the world, but remember, Jesus hasn't eaten in 40 days. Can you imagine what you would do for a bite to eat after 40 days? We're supposed to be on a budget, and we're supposed to limit our spending, but if I go like five hours and think I might miss a meal, you better believe I'm in a Chick-fil-A line somewhere. That's five hours, maybe four hours. It says Jesus has not eaten for 40 days. He's in this desert wilderness where there's no kind of prospect of food around them. And when he's tempted, then how does he respond? So verse 4, we're told that Jesus responds in this way. He answers him back, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Here in each, in each of these temptations, Jesus responds with God's word. So what we know from that is, one, Jesus was prepared. He wasn't caught off guard. He was in the word. He was with the Father. He knew God's truth. And then second, he fought with that. So he was continuing to trust in the Lord even as he resisted. In this verse, he's actually quoting Deuteronomy, and it's, if you don't have the context, it's like, well, what's going on? So when Jesus quotes Deuteronomy, 
Um, Israel was actually being tested in a similar way in the wilderness. God was providing them manna or bread each day, and they were told on the Sabbath, don't go collect anything because the Lord is the one who will provide for you. And so the temptation for Israel, because they were starving as well, was will God provide? Will he each day, he knows my wants and my needs, will he give it to me? Or do we need to run out and find bread for ourselves? So Jesus refers back to that and says, you don't live by bread alone, meaning when God gives you the bread, it's not about the bread, but it's about the God who is the provider, the life giver, and the joy sustainer. The temptation in here is, will I provide for myself? Will I force God's hand? Will I not wait? Will I trust him? And Jesus here trusts in the Father. He fights bad theology with good theology, saying God is good, God is to be trusted, God will provide. And I encourage you in your own time, kind of look at the second and third temptations and see again, what is Jesus tempted with? So what's the strategy of the enemy? And how does he respond? How does he model fighting with sin? And Adam and Eve were shown what not to do. They were caught off guard. Satan appealed to their desires. And they listened to their adversary. But Jesus, he shows us what it looks like to remain steadfast in faith and trust in the Lord. What it looks like not to listen to your adversary, but to speak truth to him. What it looks like to trust God, to not be deceived, to not be caught off guard by the tactics of the enemy, but to remain faithful in the midst of the war. So what we see from that test case, Genesis 3 and Matthew 4, kind of an example, but then the bigger picture of 1 Peter 5, 8 and 9 is that we're told that we need to be awake. This isn't a super complex passage. There's not a lot to, oh, what's that mean? What's there to figure out? But it is an essential passage. This is important for us as believers if we want to know, how do I not get tripped up by the enemy as I'm trying to be faithful to the Lord? And so again, you have to apply this to yourself. You have to ask the question then for yourself, how is that going for you? How well are you living prepared, on guard, being sober-minded, and being watchful? How well are you fighting your sin? Are you fighting your sin at all? What does your war on sin, temptation, and the enemy look like? You have to answer those questions for yourself. But we know we're called to it. We're called to be sober-minded and to be watchful. So I want to close again by giving three applications. So we gave applications to being on guard, I want to give three applications for what it looks like to resist him and to fight. The first is not to play with sin. Again, the Bible says the devil is a snake and a lion. He's not a domesticated animal to be played with or toyed with. And when we treat sin and temptation lightly, when we treat it casually, when we think, I can keep it around, when we feed it in small ways, when we say, it's okay, I've tamed it, I've caged it, that is playing dangerously and loosely with sin. When that happens, we're like all those examples of people on when animals attack who are too loose with a dangerous wild animal and it turned on them. And what we're told in the Bible is as much as you think you have control of your sin, as much as it doesn't seem like a big deal, as much as you think I can handle this on my own, sin will always turn on you. It will always attack you. And so this passage is a call and a reminder to take your sin seriously, to take temptation seriously, to believe I have an enemy who is out to attack and get me, and I need to be on guard, and I need to fight. The second one is to fight sin and delight in Christ. 
There are a lot of different ways you can fight sin. We're told to put off, but we're also told to put on. And one of the greatest weapons, hear this, one of the greatest weapons against the enemy is intimacy and worship of God. We must not only fight sin, we do need to fight our sin, put up safeguards, be saying no, but the greatest thing we do is say yes to know Christ, to abide with him. Our souls are created to be satisfied in something. Our hearts need something to feed on, and it will either be Christ or it will be sin. Thomas Chalmers says it like this. He says, The best way to overcome the world is not with morality or self-discipline. Christians overcome the world, meaning the sin in the world, by seeing the beauty and excellence of Christ. They overcome the world by seeing something more attractive than the world, Christ. So my encouragement here is to not only think about what I don't do, but what do I do? Well, you must know and love and worship and delight in Christ. That is the best thing you can do for your heart, and that is the thing the enemy fears the most. If you could take one thing from you, it would be your intimacy and abiding with the Lord. Finally, listen to your advocate, not your accuser. One of the devil's favorite weapons to use is to whisper lies, to accuse us, to try to discourage believers by reminding them of their past, of their guilt, of their failures, by telling us we're not loved or accepted by God, that you can't be a Christian and do that, that you can't be a Christian, that God doesn't love you, he's not for you. Well, this, all of those lies, all of those accusations, this is why the gospel, the gospel must be the high ground from which we fight from. If we are not on the gospel and fighting from that vantage, we are sure to be overtaken and to lose. What this means then is as Christians, we must listen to the promises of our advocate, not the lies of our accuser. Our accuser is eager to devour us, but our advocate is eager to deliver us. You see, the reality and the truth is that everything Satan will accuse you of, everything he will whisper to you, is probably in part true. We have all sinned against God. We have turned from the Lord. We have rebelled against him. Even as believers, we continue to do wrong things things we said we wouldn't do, things we can't believe we do. And so Satan capitalizes that, and he whispers and he accuses and says, see, you're not a believer, or God has to be disappointed with you, or you are so dirty. And if we are living upon our good deeds, our good nature, or our obedience to the law, then we will be in trouble because all those things are true about us. But the gospel, the gospel tells us that Jesus died on a cross as a sin-bearing substitute that he was a perfect mediator who takes our sin, he takes our guilt, takes our shame, he takes the deserving wrath that was supposed to be upon us, and he takes it for us. If we then confess our sin, we turn from it, and we place our faith in Jesus, what we're told is all of that is washed away. All of that is forgiven. All of that is as far as the east is from the west. The gospel tells us that Jesus, he takes our sin, and he gives us righteousness that he takes our death and he gives us life, that he takes our guilt so that we get the favor of God. So that any of my own sin, any of my own junk that the devil then wants to whisper to me, any of these half-truths that he wants to bring to mind, I have to just swap those away with the promises of my advocate. It says, my righteousness is on you. You are mine. You belong to me. 
I died for you. I've cleared your debt. All of your guilt, all of your shame has been paid for. Therefore, the devil has nothing on you. Even death itself has been conquered. So any of those whispers are meaningless, and we must speak God's word to ourselves and to our enemy. We sing this often in the song, Before the Throne of God Above. It says, When Satan tempts me to despair, and he tells me of the guilt within, well, upward I look and see him there, Jesus, the one who made an end to all my sin. Because the perfect, sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free, for God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. So brothers and sisters, what we have to do is replace the accuser's lies with the advocate's promises. We have to remember when our enemy attacks us that we must be guard on guard, we must be watchful, and we must be ready to fight. And we do so from the high ground of the gospel. We're told that the enemy, as hard as he attacks, he is a defeated and wounded foe, that Jesus has already beat him and victory is declared. So be on guard and fight 